Podglomerate original. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, the carbon copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, the carbon copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to the carbon copy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Spoiler alert. This podcast isn't actually about the mystery of what happened to Disney's Mineral King Ski Resort. When I first visited the area, the ski resort wasn't there, so I know that it was never built. And it's pretty easy to read between the lines of how and why it never quite got there, even if you don't know all the details of the story. And don't worry, we're going to get into some of those if you are curious. But this podcast has always been about asking the bigger questions. Namely, what does it mean to be a responsible outdoors person? And a big idea that seems to keep coming up episode to episode is that maybe some of the ways we view nature and our role in it are not fully formed or accurate. We sometimes see ourselves as separate from nature, but can also recognize we're a part of it. We enjoy recreating outdoors, but also recognize that too much recreation or overuse can damage something that we love. And what was once thought as the correct or right way to do something, often over time, turns out to be wrong or at least different than how we do things today. So what can we learn from a story like Mineral King? For me, one of the biggest takeaways has been this concept or idea of the rights of nature. And we've kind of talked around it on the show, but today we're gonna take a slightly deeper look. But first, a little more history. I'm Andrew Steven, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and lessons learned along the way. In May 1972, Disney Productions announced a significant revision to its Mineral King development plans. Initially, the plans called for a 35 million, 22 ski lift resort. Now, the park would cost 15 million, 
and only have 10 ski lifts. As development dragged on for almost a decade after Walt Disney first announced his plans to build a ski park in the Mineral King Valley, its evolving costs showcased an ever-growing budget, one that only increased with each day the park spent unbuilt. It's uncertain if this change had anything to do with the growing opposition to the ski resort's environmental footprint. Still, it certainly was one factor slowing the process, which in turn hurt the bottom line. Plus, Walt Disney World had been in development simultaneously and opened in 1971, with a planned budget of $70 million that was rumored to have risen to $400 million. One of the most significant changes to Mineral King's plan was the primary access to the park would officially utilize a 15-mile railway, financed with a $20 million Tulare County bond, and operated by Disney without a profit. From Disney's point of view, the railway would be both less polluting, maybe to score some points with the environmentalists, and easier to meander its way through the narrow passages of the old service road. California's Governor Ronald Reagan was on board and signed legislation removing a segment of the old road from the state's highway system, allowing for the railway to be built. The Los Angeles Times quoted Governor Reagan saying, I want to stress as strongly as possible that I am firmly in support of the development of Mineral King as a recreational area. Southern California urgently needs additional year-round mountain recreation areas. Development of Mineral King will help serve that need. However, I'm convinced that proper development will not be hampered by the lack of a high-speed road. Alternate access methods will suffice and, in the end, better serve the needs of both conservation and recreation. However, more than the support of Governor Reagan would be needed to start construction. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. As time continued on after Walt Disney's death, opposition, led mainly by the Sierra Club, continued to grow against Disney's proposed ski park. Armed with new leadership and confidence, the Sierra Club decided on a new approach to environmentalism, the legal system. The Sierra Club first sued the United States Secretary of the Interior in San Francisco Federal Court to block the development of the Mineral King Ski Resort, 
arguing Disney's resort would cause, quote, irreparable harm to the public interest, end quote. However, the courts found the Sierra Club did not have standing to sue because, simply put, it had made no allegation that it would personally be affected by Disney's ski resort. Well, the, the concept of, of st standing, I mean, the, the, if you think of, it, the, of the, ter the term, the word itself, standing, it, it's simply who can bring the suit. Here's Professor Daniel Selmy from the previous episode. And the answer is that not everybody can sue over everything. There have to be some limits on that. And, and that's what this case was about. I can't sue McDonald's because the coffee's too hot if I wasn't actually burned by the coffee. Uh, that's absolutely true. You would, you'd have no legal action against them. The judge also stated that the law said it was within the secretary's discretion, quote, to make available a vast area of incomparable beauty to more people rather than have it remain inaccessible except to a rugged few, end quote. The Sierra Club appealed the decision, hoping the Supreme Court would hear the case and award them not only a legal victory, but an environmental victory as well. Walt Disney Productions has described Mineral King, and I'm quoting from the appendix at page 53A, as unsurpassed in natural splendor, perhaps more similar to the European Alps than any other area in the United States, and generously endowed with lakes, streams, cascades, caverns, and matchless mountain vistas. The Sierra Club's appeal was granted, and their case was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court on November 17, 1971. This is the oral arguments from that case, Sierra Club v. Morton. And that's the voice of the Sierra Club's lawyer, Leland R. Selna, Jr. Mr. Chief Justice Berger, and may it please the court, the Sierra Club brought this proceeding to establish that their plans to authorize a huge private recreational development at Mineral King in Sequoia National Game Refuge, and for a state highway across Sequoia National Park to reach that development were illegal. As the Supreme Court heard the case, the Sierra Club argued that because it was in the business of protecting national parks and other public lands, it should have the right to go to court. The club argued that unless temporarily enjoined, the implementation of those plans would cause irreparable harm to the special conservation interests of the club and to the public. The Sierra Club presented comments from Stephen Mather, the first director of the National Park Service, saying, The Sierra Club members probably know that area better than now than any other living people. They go there nearly every year, a club of about 2,000 members, and they know every nook and corner of it. But, but there isn't any direct testimony by members of the club anywhere in the record, is there? Direct testimony concerning their use, Mr. Chief, Mr. Justice White? No, there's not. This goes back to the days of John Muir, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Commencing in 1965, the club sought public hearings to challenge the project, which threatened to seriously impair its conservation program and to harm the public interest in conserving these special lands. But the Secretary of Agriculture refused to conduct those hearings, and without them, he promised to issue the two interlocking permits to Disney. The government argued that since the club had not claimed there would be any injury to itself or its members from the resort, it had no business in the federal court. The Ninth Circuit denied standing in this case because, and I quote from its opinion, 
The club had not asserted that any of its property will be damaged, that its organization or members will be endangered, or that its status will be threatened. Why does it have to be an association? Why couldn't it be a man? Uh, let's make him an old man who for 70 years has had a very genuine interest uh, in what the Sierra Club is interested in. Uh, he's now uh, 75, and he's had this uh, very genuine interest since he was five years old, for 70 years. And he can show it to the satisfaction of a court. Has, has had exactly the same interest that the Sierra Club has. Why couldn't he bring this lawsuit? Mr. Justice Stewart, I think that he could. John, you're a person. Right. Could do it. Now, I take it, Mr. Selma, from your remarks, you, you concede there is some limitation other than a broad, and that a broad general interest in the problems of ecology is not enough. Uh, uh, to be more specific, if there were a controversy about the installation of a nuclear power plant on the Mississippi River, would you feel the Sierra Club would have standing to sue connection with that. Mr. Justice Blackman, I am not at this moment familiar with whether the Sierra Club has a chapter or an expertise in, in that area. I would have to consult with the club before I could answer your question. But it would have to have competence in, in the area in which it sought to represent the public interest or it wouldn't be able to do it. On April 19th, 1972, in a 4-3 to decision, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the Sierra Club's suit because the Sierra Club had not established that they were suffering direct harm due to the future ski resort. Uh, turning to the question of standing, uh, it should be clear from our argument that we do, do not urge that the doors of courts be opened wide to anyone. We've argued that uh, there are criteria that should be applied by a court by which organizations or individuals' qualifications for standing should be tested. The club in this case did, in fact, allege its special interest in the area involved. And in this area of notice pleading, no one in California at the district court level had any question in their mind as to the deep involvement of the club with Sequoia National Park and Mineral King so that a case or controversy would be assured. The Sierra Club lacked standing to sue because it had not showed how the proposed ski resort would injure any individuals, as opposed to the collective interests of the club. The Sierra Club could not essentially, and perhaps oversimplified, argue on behalf of the club as a whole or nature itself. And therefore, they did not actually allege any legal interest in the case. What they say is that if they had a real plaintiff here, he couldn't have shown irreparable harm because whatever damage he suffered would be by the government. So they had to appear in the most general terms. Such a decision would thereby establish the proposition that the Sierra Club and numerous other worthy organizations, old and new, have standing to raise in court any legal question in which they assert an interest, and without more. The Sierra Club's argument was not allowed, so there was nothing to argue against. If it is the fact that it is a group that gives it standing, how big a group must it be? Three members, or five, or fifty? Or fifty thousand? What reason is there for picking any number? 
If any group has standing because it has an intellectual or emotional interest, does it not inevitably follow that any individual who asserts an interest likewise has standing to raise these legal questions? Justice William O. Douglas of the Supreme Court argued in a famous dissent against the building of Disney's Mineral King that the voice of the inanimate object should not be stifled. Justice Douglas's dissent argued that Mineral King itself ought to be the plaintiff in the case, with its own interest represented by the Sierra Club or, quote, another friend, giving the public stage to the concept of the rights of nature. Uh, you know, the comparison I've seen is Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, sort of who will speak for the trees. I'm, I'm the Lorax, guardian of the forest. I speak for the trees. So, yeah, it's about who will speak for the trees. What do they have to show to be allowed to speak for? Daniel Piselmi again. I mean, there's no question the Sierra Club wanted to speak for, for the valley. What do you have to show to be able to do that? There was no standing for a tree or nature or mineral king itself. Legal personhood wasn't on the mind of most arguing. When I saw that case, I thought, this is in a way sort of silly. Uh, this is an important decision uh, as to whether to develop the Mineral King Valley in this way. Uh, I'm not sure how it should come out, but at least it should be heard. The concept, perhaps needing to be articulated, had been in the air. Also in 1972, one year after Dr. Seuss's The Lorax was published, a USC law professor wrote a paper called Should Trees Have Standing? And if the problem of its being heard is that this club was not injured, suffered no injury, why not just say, look, the, the injury is suffered by Mineral King Valley. And when the case came down, the Supreme Court majority agreed with the Ninth Circuit that there was no standing had been pleaded, but Justice Douglas in his dissent said, but why not just essentially follow Stone's position and let the mineral king be the plaintiff? Professor Christopher Stone argued that trees and other natural resources have rights and environmental groups should be entitled to speak for them and to present their claims in court. This caused an immense uh, more publicity than law review articles ordinarily get. I think partly there was a feeling that uh, this is really a zany professor, and uh, by gum, he's, he's roped in three members of the U.S. Supreme Court. The reception that it got surprised me by both more by how, how warm it was. But this was, and still is, considered a fringe belief by many. Uh, that we should be speaking for nature, that we, nature should have its own voice, and when they understood that a guardian, that even though nature can't speak, corporations can't speak, nation states can't speak, they hire someone, they have a council to speak for them. I can't s place trees in a, like any causal chain. Ideas flip-flop around and skeeter here and there, back and forth in a society. But somewhere along the line, more people are concerned about the environment. More money is being given to environmental groups. The fact that after 40 years, it's still drawing attention and people still want to talk about it uh, is gratifying. 
Even though the Supreme Court decided the Sierra Club did not have standing, in a footnote, almost as a hint for the future, the court left it open for the Sierra Club to amend its complaint to include specific allegations of injury to itself or its members. Maybe there was still hope after all. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's better. H-E-L-P dot W-E-I-G-H-T. Well, the Sierra Club and Mineral King may have ended up at the Supreme Court, it certainly isn't the only case that's brought up similar questions. I was sitting at my desk one of those golden sunny fall mornings, late 2016, when I saw text come in from a friend that said, do you want to go to Standing Rock with me? Never thought about going to Standing Rock. That's Kat Houghton giving a talk at TEDx Asheville. We arrived at Standing Rock late in the afternoon of November 20th. At that time, there was somewhere between seven and 10,000 people spread across three camps. It's chilly out, and the sun is starting to drop below that long northern plain horizon. I'm carrying some of the food that we bought in our car to a tent when a, a pickup truck goes by. It's loaded with people, and one of the guys in the back has a megaphone. He's shouting, action on the bridge, now! They're taking the bridge, let's go! Three more pickup trucks. People are running around grabbing backpacks, radios, barking instructions at each other. I have no idea what's going on. And within an hour, they're coming back from what had become the front lines. In April 2016, many people from Standing Rock and surrounding Native American communities organized to stop construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. On the north side of the bridge, there's a large group of militarized police, full riot gear. They're armed with guns with rubber bullets, water cannons, pepper spray, and sound grenades. And they're using their weapons at will. And on the south side of the bridge is a ragtag group of water protectors. 
Some of them are wearing feathers, some of them are wearing camo. Many of the women have long skirts. And they're armed with banners that they've painted themselves. And they say things like, water is life, mini wakoni. Defend the sacred, and you can't drink oil. The pipeline runs from North Dakota to Illinois, crossing underneath the Missouri and Mississippi rivers and Lake O'Hay, near the Standing Rock Reservation. Many members of the Standing Rock tribe and surrounding communities see the pipeline as a threat to the region's water, both in its construction and in fear of an inevitable leak or environmental disaster. And the construction also directly threatens ancient burial grounds and cultural sites of historic importance in the area. This is a standoff between two worldviews. One worldview that holds that it's just and it's right to use taxpayer money to defend the interests of a co private corporation. And that the rights of that corporation to make a profit are higher law than the rights of the people and the planet that are bearing the costs. And that it's perfectly reasonable to use force against unarmed people. And on the other side, a worldview that thinks that water is a sacred thing, that all life is a sacred thing, and that we're held together by a web of life, and that each of us has the right to a healthy and a clean environment, and that prayer, love, and ceremony are the greatest forces of change on the planet. These two worldviews were facing each other that night on Blackwater Bridge, and they continue to do so around the globe. So Standing Rock was about protecting the water, and it was about the rights of indigenous people in this country. What if we added to that the rights of the Missouri River herself? What if our French Broad River had rights? What if the Amazon rainforest right now on fire had legal standing? What would that do for this work of ecological protection? And what would it do for that union of to those two worldviews? Many believe that, since recognition of human rights is based partially on the belief that rights originate simply from humanity's existence, shouldn't the same apply to nature? If a corporation can hold legal personhood, why can't a tree, valley, or water system? Not to mention that, if human survival depends on a healthy natural world, wouldn't the protection of nature be in humanity's best interest? either from a practical origin or an innate conviction. This question, this concept, seems to be on a lot of people in the Western world's mind lately. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Two hours west of Duluth, there's a wide, shallow lake called Big Rice Lake. In a recent episode of 99% Invisible, they looked at another specific case around the concept of the rights of nature. In my first time actually racing, me and my sister took my grandma and my mother out on the lake and we were going around in circles and they were pointing, I want to go over there, I want to go over there. This is Evelyn Bellinger, an elder enrolled in the White Earth Band, which is the largest of the six bands that make up the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, also known as the Ojibwe people. Evelyn has always loved going out on Big Rice Lake to take part in the harvest. And it's really quiet, you know, you're not going fast, but you can hear when somebody pulls that rice and they got a rhythm and it goes whoosh, whoosh. 
you could just hear that race falling in the boat. The rhythm of it, the sound of it. But for the Ojibwe people, this wild rice isn't just a food source. It's a lot more. And it was a gift to the Ojibwe people. It was a gift. The Ojibwe people didn't always live in this part of the Midwest. They used to be based on the East Coast. Then, about a thousand years ago, their elders were visited by the first of seven prophets who guided them. We were told to move from the East Coast because if we didn't, we would be destroyed. When you get a prophecy like that, you don't generally ignore it. So they packed up and left, looking for a new home. That's reporter Rose Eveleth, host of the podcast Flash Forward. The prophecy said they'd know where to settle when they found the place where the food grows on the water. Where the food grows on the water. After centuries of moving around, they wound up in the Great Lakes, where they found exactly what they were looking for in the form of wild rice. The Ojibwe name for this specific type of rice is monomen, which translates to the good berry. The scientific name is Zazania palustris. It's the only grain indigenous to North America. And while it might look and taste a lot like the rice that you might buy at the store, it's actually not closely related to brown or white rice at all. For the Ojibwe people, gathering this sacred prophesized rice is a ritual that carries with it a lot of significance. The rice is an important food source. It's a way to connect with their ancestors. And it's a vital part of the area's ecosystem. So last year, the rice itself sued the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. The case of Monoman v. Minnesota Department of Natural Resources alleges that the Minnesota DNR infringed on the wild rice's right to live and thrive. I highly recommend taking a moment to listen to the entire episode, The Rights of Rice and Future of Nature from 99% Invisible. But there's a part of the episode that very much reflects the Mineral King and Standing Rock stories. There's one big obvious threat at the moment. In 2014, a company named Enbridge proposed updating and replacing sections of a crude oil pipeline called Line 3 that goes through Minnesota. But local tribes and environmental activists had questions about just how safe this pipeline really was and whether pumping more oil through their land was really a good idea. A pipeline battle brewing in Minnesota, today with the largest show of resistance yet. Activists tried all kinds of tactics to stop Line 3. They protested and petitioned and lobbied the various environmental agencies to step in. We reached out to the Minnesota DNR and Enbridge for this story. Both declined to do an interview on the record, but Enbridge did send a statement disputing that the pipeline had negative environmental impacts and saying that they worked with local tribes, including the White Earth Nation, to plan the route for the pipeline. They also say it would bypass certain critical areas in Rice Lake. But many tribal members are not convinced, including Frank. Frank Bebo a tribal attorney, and a member of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe. It wasn't until those other avenues felt like they were hitting dead ends that Frank was turned loose with his plan. And the funny part is, you know, in Indian country, I'm like a Robin Hood doing this. 
Frank was developing a legal strategy. He thought instead of playing by the rules of the big national and state agencies, what if you use tribal ideas and tribal court to enforce a relatively new realm of law called the rights of nature? You have arguments that that natural objects ought to have rights. Here's environmental law professor Daniel Selmy once more. And you know there ought to be uh, uh, mineral king ought to have rights not to be developed, for example, or you know various endangered species ought to have rights. Though many in the Sierra Club believe that, this wasn't the argument they made in court. Mostly because that concept generally has not been accepted in the law. But remember, it was raised in Justice Douglas's dissent. In the case that's very famous, was was widely republished actually in newspapers afterwards. One of his ideas was that the lawsuit ought to be able to be brought in the name of the inanimate object, in the name of Mineral King, and that lawyers should be able to bring the suit and get adjudicated the legality of this proposal to develop Mineral King on behalf of the Mineral King Valley itself. Earlier in the season, I spoke with wildlife expert Dr. Ray Wynn Grant. And one of the things I wanted to know what her take was on this whole rights of nature thing. Oh, gosh. I, you know, I have not landed on an answer. I do believe that wild animals have, you know, kind of inherent rights to exist and live and thrive. You know, that like they are born with that right to be just as living creatures on this earth. And I also, you know, from a human to human perspective, I, I believe the most in indigenous sovereignty and liberation of historically oppressed groups. And I just have this feeling that if the whole world that has like a difficult, sometimes complicated, violent, traumatic history of removing people and pillaging resources, et cetera, I kind of feel like if the whole world were able to shift back to liberation of oppressed people and indigenous sovereignty, that if the original peoples of the world were able to manage their original landscapes, but like wildlife would probably be like kind of okay. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot has, a lot has changed. Like we have like fewer animals in so many places than we used to. Right. But, but I really kind of think that like the original stewards of the environment should be in charge of the environment. And I think that there's a lot of reason to believe that if that were the case, we might have more balanced ecosystems in many places that are out of balance. And, you know, obviously I'm not like the first person who ever thought about this, right? There are so many movements that there have been for a long, long time to return land to original stewards and respect, you know, indigenous rights globally and to really allow indigenous cultural groups to manage natural resources. And I and I guess 
that's why I think like the conversation should kind of start there when it yeah. comes to rights. And and in some of the places, like there are countries in this world and countries like that stick out like in South America where, you know, like rights have been given to nature. And like a lot of those movements have been led by the original inhabitants of those yeah. landscapes. And so it's a really good example of how like, okay, if that's kind of the local traditional belief system, great, it seems to be working really well. And I think the best way to implement that in other parts of the world is starting from an approach of social justice, right? So mm -hmm. not like, you know, a like mainstream colonist version of giving rights to nature, but like really bottom-up community-led return of rights to the original community, you know, of people, wildlife, natural environments, etc. I said that in like such a clunky <laughs> way, but I think you get what I'm saying that like the idea is right, but but it needs to include like like a like a justice element yes. too you know so we can't have environmental justice like without social justice too in places where there has been harm done yeah this is just sort of like this is oversimplified if we're saying the system is broken why do we think including nature in the system will fix the problem if the system's are broken. Sure, sure. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where I was like, there's some systems in place right now, they can't just like move the needle to the yeah. middle, like from one extreme to another, we actually have to just like, knock it down. And build something that addresses every issue. And in here's Frank Bebo on 99% invisible again. It's kind of like when you have a pair of glasses on your table and the arm's a little loose and you look over and you got a pair of scissors on the table and you try to tighten that little screw. You know, it's not the right tool, but it can work. Right now, the Monoman case is still up in the air, but Frank is already helping other tribes consider a similar strategy. In Seattle, the Soxuyetl tribe has filed a case in tribal court seeking to protect salmon. This summer, the rice will grow on the lakes again, and the boats will head out the way they always have. And in fact, I, I, you know, I'm always trying to educate myself. So I recently like looked up the actual definition of the word radical because I often describe mm. myself as a radical thinker like, when it comes. So you're, to... Like you're super cool and like really hip. <laughs> yeah, like radical dude. Like that's the Californian in me. But I often describe myself as like having radical views when it comes to mm -hmm. equity and justice. And, you know, and I was able to like really nail down the definition of radical essentially means like, like all inclusive, right? Mm -hmm. So like touching everything. So leaving, leaving nothing out and like kind of holistic. So when you say like, I have a radical view about social justice, it means like, I think every single thing related to society needs to be touched by, mm. you know, a reshaping, right? So if you're like, I have a radical view to, you know. Yeah, it's not like counterculture or counter mainstream, but it's Right, more, it's, it's just, just like saying like inclusive. everything is involved. I, I like, I don't think we should like cherry pick what to change. I think everything needs to be impacted here. And that actually made me feel even more comfortable <laughs> with saying I have a radical view because I'm like, yeah, like I, yeah. I, I do. I think it's like, I think it's everything because, you know, we're intersectional people, every single one of us, like we have intersections of identities and all of us and mm -hmm. backgrounds and experiences and histories. And it's all touched by how we're socialized and, you know, and the same with nature, right? I don't know what it's going to take 
Kat Houghton again. It's certainly going to take us questioning our own assumptions, both in private contemplation and in community conversation. When I came back from Standing Rock, I met a man named Tyler Garrison. He'd previously raised $40,000 and sent three tractor-trailer loads of gear up to Standing Rock for the winter. He and I got to talking. We fell in love. We started working with a group of environmental lawyers out of Pennsylvania called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Tyler and I worked closely with CELDEF to write Asheville's Climate Bill of Rights. This is a local ordinance, so it's a city-level law. It establishes the rights of the citizens that live here to a healthy environment, and that that be higher law than the rights of a corporation to make a profit. And it establishes the rights of nature. Standing Rock changed my life. I know it changed Tyler's life. And in February of 2018, Tyler was killed in a motorcycle accident. But the love and the energy that he poured into this work is amplified every single time one of us that recognizes that all life is a gift. It's given to us. And every single time we acknowledge the preciousness of the time that we have right now to step firmly into our roles as protectors of this beautiful planet. Rights of nature, legal personhood, good idea, good intention, wrong-headed or wildly missing the mark. If we're the ones speaking for nature because it doesn't have an audible voice, whose interpretation is correct? The actual specifics of these debates will always be tricky. Here's Rose Eveleth again. Who is to say whether the ocean wants an offshore wind farm that might overall decrease global warming? Who gets to decide if the river would rather have a hydroelectric dam or not? In other words, who speaks for the trees? Special thanks again to Professor Daniel Selmy. His book, Dawn at Mineral King, is a must-read if any of this is interesting to you. And huge thanks to Oye, spelled O-Y-E-Z, the free law project from Cornell's Legal Information Institute, Justia, and Chicago Kent College of Law. Thanks also to Kat Houghton and her TEDx Asheville Talk, the episode The Rights of Rice and Future of Nature from 99% Invisible, and Dr. Ray Wingrant. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Steven. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. For more information, photos, and transcripts, visit trailweight.com. 
You can find additional podcasts, shows, and more at andrewstephen.com. Thanks for listening. Conglomerate Original.